Maghreb in Past and Present podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. is part of the Contemporary Thoughts series and was recorded on April 4th, 2018 at the Centre d'études Maghrébines à Tunis, CEMAT. In this episode, Dr. Mariam Getat, CEMAT Assistant Director, interviews Dr. Ruth Hanau Santini, Associate Professor of Political Science and International Relations at Università L'Orientale of Naples in Italy, about her new book entitled Limited Statehood in Post-Revolutionary Tunisia, Citizenship, Economy and Security. Thanks to record a podcast with us on your new book, Limited Statehood in Post-Revolutionary Tunisia, Citizenship, Economy and Security. My first question is about your inspiration to write this book. Can you tell us more about it? Hi, thank you so much for having me here. And um, yeah, so um, I've been coming to Tunisia since I was a teenager and that was for holidays with my family. And it was a country that we would uh, sort of regularly visit, but purely for entertainment reasons. And then uh, when 2011 happened, I was in the US at Brookings Institution and I was working actually on European foreign policy towards the Middle East and North Africa. Also because for a number of reasons, uh, I had been having uh, trouble carrying out fieldwork, especially in Tunisia, which is where I really wanted to concentrate on. So at that moment, I started coming back to Tunisia on a very regular basis. And I was also lucky enough to uh, get some funding, uh, actually two big projects that I coordinated and led. And one was on citizenship in comparative perspective across North Africa, focusing on Tunisia, Egypt and Morocco post-2011 and looking especially at the discourses and evolution of citizenship notions across these countries. So I guess the inspiration was a very sort of personal one for me. So for a number of reasons, I felt a strong attachment to Tunisia. And then it was uh, political excitement after 2011. And, and from then on, I guess the prism of citizenship rights sort of became the first framework I adopted to look at what was going on. And then uh, that translated into sort of a second framework, which was uh, rethinking notions more broadly about state-society relations. Uh, and so on the one hand, maybe the notions of contentious politics, and on the other, what kind of statehood are we talking about when we think about the evolution of state-society relations in this country? And I found the notion of limited statehood quite useful, and so I tried to problematize it a bit, but also try to adopt it to the Tunisian case post-2011. So this is what the book is about. So the key notion uh, of your book, as you uh, presented, is limited statehood in relationship to citizenship and uh, security and economy. Can you define this concept and explain more how it develops throughout your book? Right, sure. So the idea is, um, so in its um, sort of standard definition by Thomas Risse, a German professor at the Freie University, limited statehood uh, draws from a Weberian sociology of the state 
and is opposed to consolidated statehood. So we're talking about uh, the ideal type of statehood, which, however, sort of tries to think in terms of uh, degrees of uh, uh, different modalities of the statehood and the ways in which it manifests itself without uh, creating a normative sort of uh, purely good functioning state as opposed to uh, weak states, for example, which is why I initially liked very much the idea of limited statehood because it didn't feel this uh, standard Eurocentric bias uh, uh, favoring notions of good functioning statehood as uh, drawing on the European and Western experience. So the idea is uh, you find limited statehood also across European and Western countries and, uh, for example, southern Italy is often used as an example of limited statehood. And uh, what uh, limited statehood uh, means, to be more precise, it refers to the inability of the central government to implement uh, decisions. And this can happen across several levels. So it can happen in uh, specific policy areas or in specific portions of the national territory, or across a specific portion of the population, or in a specific period of time. So what you get is basically uh, within this approach of limited statehood, the idea that the state is defined by two main aspects, because it draws on Weber, which I do try to problematize in the first chapter. One is, of course, the ability to implement decisions. So if you want sort of the administrative capacity of the state, the, its infrastructural uh, power. And the other one has to do, of course, with the monopoly of violence. And so when you encounter cases of limited statehood, it either means that there's a state that, in terms of central government, that doesn't manage to actually take through every decision it has taken, or they doesn't have the monopoly uh, over the means of violence, so that there are other actors, non-state actors, transnational actors, uh, international actors, uh, that exert control and forms of coercive power across its territory. So I think it's a potential uh, framework useful to generate some insights into unpacking the state and notions of the state without being too normative. But it does draw on uh, a classic sort of Weberian uh, approach. And uh, I tried to problematize it by adding some nuance brought about by the thinking of uh, Stephen Krasner, but also Barry Buzan and others, and sort of adding two aspects, I guess. So one is um, when Stephen Krasner in 1999 talked about sovereignty as organized hypocrisy, he actually referred to the gap with the discrepancy between uh, what uh, a state in terms of its uh, so statehood as domestic sovereignty promises, so sovereignty as uh, a norm, and sovereignty as a norm belongs to so-called logic of appropriateness. So it embodies a number of uh, expectations and principles that have to do with the normative orientation of politics. And is opposed to logic of consequences, which is a much more instrumental kind of logic of action. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this sort of uh, very standard dichotomy coming from March and Olsen, so it's a very sort of political science uh, classic notion of these two logic of action, is interesting if we uh, apply it to statehood and limited statehood in particular, 
and the Tunisian case in particular, because especially since 2011, there have been a number of uh, promises and expectations explicitly made by the partially new political establishment, we could say, that have generated new uh, expectations uh, and that have failed to be delivered. And so, in a way, I guess that this increasing gap between uh, logic of appropriateness and logic of consequences, so in a way, promises about redistribution, promises about curtailing of privileges and uh, curbing corruption and nepotism, and then, on, and of course, enshrined in the new constitutional text adopted in January 2014, but on the other side, uh, then the failure to not just materialize empty promises, but actually, on the one hand, being, not being able to implement decisions taken in a constitution and formalized in a constitutional text, but on the other, also in terms of the idea of the state, which is, for example, the notion Barry Buzan talks about. So the state is not just about territory and institutions, it's about an idea, and which is a very, very powerful set of social and political images that the state evokes and creates. And so, in a way, if you fail to sort of uh, give substance or accomplish all the promises that you created, then what does this do in terms of the idea of the state on the one hand, in terms of the gap between logic of appropriateness and logic of consequences, and in terms of statehood. So that is why, if you want in a nutshell, I think Tunisia really embodies this idea of limited statehood on all these numbers of levels. You talked about the definition of limited statehood as being the inability of the central state to deliver promises, but also to implement its decisions. And uh, I cannot help but think about decentralization as being one promise at the one hand, but being also one decision and one policy that is being implemented by the Tunisian government as a solution to the limited statehood. Do you agree that decentralization would help establish the image of the central state at the local level. Right. So I guess that the constitution talks about positive discrimination in favor of marginalized regions, uh, historically marginalized, socially marginalized, and the notion of marginal, what is marginal, what is the periphery, is actually quite a debated notion. It's not just about the geography, of course, of a country. It's about the images, again, the social construction of, of geography and of uh, peripheral representations. And so, in a sense, I guess that the big sort of of, uh, one of the biggest and most significant cleavages in Tunisia, and not just since 2011, but since uh, the independence, 56 and onwards, has been the sort of binary, sort of dichotomy between uh, Tunisia util, uh, so a useful Tunisia on the one hand, the coastal areas and Grand Tunis, and sort of these so-called backward marginal regions in the southeast especially, um, and also in the interior regions. This image of being backward and of uh, not being able to sort of uh, speed up in terms of uh, uh, economic and social development had also a cultural component. So uh, these regions, especially in the southeast, um, didn't really abide by the statist uh, Bourguibian project launched in the 50s and 60s, but they had a different idea of the kind of 
state-to-state state society relations that you wanted to see emerging in um, post-independence Tunisia. And of course, Ben Yusuf came from uh, this area and this had a bearing on these alternative images of social reality. So in terms of cultural recognition, I guess, this is something that has not been really elaborated after 2011 explicitly in the Tunisian discourse. And this is also something that bears upon and has an impact on the way in which not just uh, in terms of failed or lacked uh, socioeconomic redistribution from the Tunisia Util or the coastal and Grand Tunis area to uh, the sort of interior and southeastern regions, but more broadly, I think, in terms of uh, acknowledging different state projects within the country and uh, recognizing the legitimacy to a plurality of voices. And this is a big part, I think, again, when we think in terms of limited statehood, to the shortcomings of trying to impose uh, top-down just one, a unique idea of state and statehood, as if there were no other sort of, not just dissenting voices, but uh, repertoires of images that could actually be very strong and powerful in terms of generating new forms of loyalty. So I think these goes to sort of, uh, to go back to the point you raised, which is a very important one, decentralization. So if in the constitution, positive discrimination was explicitly enshrined as a principle in order to try to redress historical imbalances, but also to, I think, recognize the importance of bringing the country together. So it wasn't just about uh, being nice or paying lip service, but it was about trying to redress uh, historical injustices. And this, of course, has not just failed to see the light, but actually imbalances have grown bigger since 2011. And the poverty rate in the southeast especially is at least three times higher than in the coastal area or in Tunis. And not just the poverty rates, I mean, unemployment, every kind of significant social indicator has very, very different numbers. And it's completely different when you go in the southeastern part of the country or some interior region. So I guess that yes, decentralization is one of the key issues. And I don't know if it could be like the cathartic um, tool to sort of uh, get the country sort of in a more cohesive way together and incentivize a different kind of statehood. It would also depend very much not just on the legal framework or what it would mean for local instances of governance to be able to rule, which is, has been very much in the debate in terms of the various law projects on decentralization, but it has a lot to do with resources, of course, that can be used directly at the different levels of governance, especially local governance levels. And because of the dire straits of the economy in the country today, I think that actually it might be very um, problematic again in terms of expectations generated and then the reality. So again, this gap between logic of appropriateness and logic of consequences. If you put so much pressure on the decentralization as the sort of salvific, as the sort of policy tool that can help sort of change and turn around relations between state and society, but you don't invest enough resources in that to make it like really a groundbreaking instrument. But you know, empowered with economic resources to actually do something on the ground, it could actually even make citizens on the ground lose further faith in the political system, even on the local level. So I think that 
rather than having like formalized ideas about the importance of institutions, which absolutely is the case, but now we have been in a phase post-2014 where the issue at heart, I guess, of every Tunisian citizen is really the implementation of the constitution rather than creating or only creating new institutions or uh, new legal frameworks of action. If I understand well, limited statehood is not only about material implementation of state decisions, but it's also about the perception of the state functionalities by its citizens and also institutions. Right. Okay. So this is my uh, take on limited statehood. So this is my reformulation, because in the original uh, formulation of limited statehood by Thomas Risse, the second dimension you mentioned is absolutely not in the picture, because he draws purely on Weber. And so it's about the lack of monopoly on violence by the central government and lack of ability to implement decisions by the central government. So uh, it is a functionalist understanding of statehood. And uh, uh, while I do think, as I said, that there is a lot to be said and argued in favor of this approach that sort of uh, in general sort of allows to have a nuanced view of statehood, I also think that it misses out on the bottom-up dimension of what is statehood in the eyes of citizens, which is why I brought in sort of the Busan and the Krasner sort of gap between the two logics of action uh, dimensions. I don't know if I did a good job. I mean, this is the first step and I'm uh, going to continue focusing on this and uh, maybe also in uh, the next uh, publications I'll try to sort of be even uh, more theoretical. This is uh, more sort of a conceptual framework applied to very specific policy areas. So the book really looks then uh, at the constitutional politics phase the citizenship norms enshrined in the constitution and then the continuation of protests as a sort of an example of limited statehood and then the extent and increase in the informal economy sector in the country as a further example on various levels and then the security sector and the sort of failed security sector reforms since 2011 but the different kinds of security assistance formats that have been put in place also thanks to external actors especially the G7 plus and other European um, countries so basically I'm looking at different policy areas to show uh, the extent to which maybe across different sectors and not just in the southeast of Tunisia geographically, we see instances of limited statehood, if you wish. Thank you. So you already touched upon this question during your previous answers, but could you explain more what kind of sources you replied on during your work? Sure. The work is based on a number of uh, missions and uh, a lot of fieldwork that I carried out from 2011 to 2017. Within the first uh, research project that I led, uh, which was called EU Spring, which was funded by Compagnia di San Paolo and Italian Private Foundation. And I worked here in Tunis with the Université de Tunis, Professor Hamadi Redisi and Professor Hasman Uira. And we ran a series of focus groups in the country on uh, citizenship and perceptions of citizenship rights after 2011. That was back in 2012-2013. So exactly in the key phases of the um, working of the uh, Constituent Assembly. So of course, so focus groups were one source that I relied on, especially for the second chapter, the one on uh, uh, constitutional politics. But then I relied on discourse analysis and I looked at a number of texts uh, produced, uh, texts in a very sort of wide uh, sense uh, when I wrote about contentious politics, the third chapter, and protest continuation from 2011, and especially focusing on the new uh, and more re- 
recent contentious uh, episodes and outbursts in 2016 and 2017. And then, of course, historical process tracing. So basically reconstructing and trying to identify some critical junctures and building around these junctures, then uh, sort of identifying instances of uh, examples of limited statehood. Can you describe the major findings of your book? And is it possible to extrapolate a theory on limited statehood from the particular case of Tunisia? In terms of findings, I guess that the one of the main aims of the book was really to try to unpack the notion of statehood in Tunisia, where the idea of the state is very pervasive in the national discourse and comes with a number of strings attached. So the idea of a strong state, the idea of a very powerful state and uh, a signifier, sort of a social construction that uh, would grant not just uh, the well-being of its citizens, but also stability of the country and the future prospects, but also so the idea, if you want, of a strong state versus a weak state as this very sort of dichotomic uh, notion that gets used or monopolized by many Arab regimes across the region. And uh, yeah, and also, I guess, going back to the great work of Nazia Ayubi and his reflections on uh, the Arab state, One of the questions that led me thinking was, uh, so if post-Ben Ali Tunisia is uh, not a fierce state anymore, does this automatically mean that it will become a stronger state? Or how do we define then uh, state strength? And uh, how do we conceptualize, uh, not just uh, in absolute terms, what is strength, uh, because it is not opposed to weakness, so which is why I like the sort of limited, consolidated dichotomy more than uh, strong versus weak. But how do we encapsulate citizens, their expectations, their images, and their demands vis-à-vis the state, but also not just the demands to exert pressure, which of course citizenship is a tension, and it has to do with the power struggle between state forces and societal forces. But what really interested me was uh, unpacking the statehood notion and the state per se, in terms of uh, showing the plurality of uh, ideas and conceptions that make up what statehood can be at different points in time in history and also across different sectors of the population. So in a way, what I try to show in the book is uh, since 2011, uh, statehood has been uh, a recurrent theme and framework uh, justifying a number of actions by the state when it's about, for example, passing in 2015, July 2015, a counterterrorism law then, of course, it's about having a strong state that can guarantee the stability of the country vis-à-vis sort of uh, the regional chaos uh, uh, in neighboring countries. But then uh, uh, what are the reactions? What are acts of resistance? What are acts of citizenship shown against, uh, for example, the imposition again of the state of emergency? And what are, on the day-to-day level, instances of uh, mobilization uh, not just for socioeconomic grievances, but uh, sort of legitimized by reference to broader cultural uh, signifiers such as dignity, such as uh, fighting against humiliation, such as uh, finding sort of common ground in a non-partisan way across different sectors of the population. So I guess that I really try to give uh, an initial, I mean, it is not a definite account or anything, but it is an initial sort of reflection on uh, the contentious notions of statehood, uh, both as the 
state tries to impose them since 2011 again, but then it's actual limits on the ground and the sort of counter pressures by uh, different segments of the population. And I try to do that really looking at different policy arenas. So informal economy, security, citizenship and contentious collective action. My last question is about prediction. We talked about limited statehood from the point of view of citizens. And I would imagine that limited statehood from the point of view of the state would qualify as a crisis. So what are the possible outcomes of Tunisia's uh, contentious politics based on your concept of limited statehood? Limited statehood doesn't really mean that it is uh, a form of uh, ungoverned uh, or ungovernable uh, manifestation of state-society relations. Uh, it does not imply that uh, the state per se is weak or unable to exert control and influence over specific portions of territory or population or policy areas. What I think is very interesting in the case of Tunisia is in some areas, like the sort of uh, increasing uh, relevance of informal economy in the southeast, but not just there, across the country, and what researchers, very qualified like Hamza Medeb, but also uh, Max Gallien have been talking about, about the democratization of the smuggling economy. When we look at that area, for example, it is not really about the incapacity of the central government to sort of exert control over these areas or extract more resources. So I'm talking about taxation, of course, which would generate revenues to then foster, ideally, infrastructures and local development projects. But as I try to point out in the third chapter, this is a very sort of long historical project of uh, under having decided not to invest in some areas of the country, partially because of cultural reasons, because they did not abide to the Burgibian statist nationalist project, uh, partly because they were deemed not useful enough, so not able to generate enough revenues as compared to other regions, and partially because other regions were more penetrated by sort of uh, groups, the, what Heidemann calls the network of privilege, uh, groups close to the Ben Ali's clan who would profit uh, and then reinforce the crony capitalist system that Tunisia used to have. So what I'm trying to tell is... Uh, I guess that uh, sometimes when uh, we use the label of limited statehood or maybe, yeah, so notions linked to insufficient statehood, we think it is something negative and something that will have sort of a negative impact or consequences on the resilience of the state. This doesn't have to be the case. I think that Tunisia actually exemplifies on some levels, like the informal economy one, an explicit decision made decades ago to be a limited state in some areas. And this was part of an assessment or an evaluation of where it made more sense to invest and where it didn't make that sense in terms of costs, both economic but also social and cultural. This has been sort of a thorough decision to concentrate resources and investments and attention in only some areas and across some segments of the population of the country. So this doesn't, of course, it doesn't put well in terms of fostering a sense of national identity. Of course it doesn't. But in terms of resilience of the state, it doesn't necessarily mean that you should expect any breakdown of the state per se. What is more worrying, though, I think, is uh, the comeback of extensive corruption practices and not just 
linked to the smuggling economy in the southeast or southwest or interior regions of the country, but across the country as a whole. And the failure of the security sector reform, it's very, very slow implementation. The lack of uh, the approval of a code deontologie policière, which there have been two drafts, for example, one by the UNP and one that is being currently negotiated by the EU within the EU security sector reform agenda. I think that this is really something that Tunisian media, social media and opinion makers should be taking their attention on because this, the extent uh, and sort of impunity of police forces on a number of levels and uh, yeah, corruption is one of the examples but it's not the only one of course the, there have been recently instances of mobilization of police uh, unions not favoring actually or not mobilizing for their rights but basically acting as veto players against changes uh, in the sense of democratizing the security sector so I think that the challenges to the state of Indonesia will come more from the incapacity now. This is an incapacity of the state and the central government to rein in its police forces and its uh, some parts of its security sector, rather than, for example, this historical sort of decision not to sort of invest in the same way in some areas than in other. And not because one is more important than the other, but because the sense of humiliation and of lack of dignity triggered in 2010 2011, exactly by the kind of constant violation by security forces vis-à-vis the population, is coming back to the fore. And I think that this could have very, very serious consequences in terms of citizens who are now used to having a different idea of themselves as citizens and not as subjects, and so empowered and who are then less tolerant vis-à-vis these kind of abuses and daily abuses. Thank you, Ruth, for this very enriching conversation about your work. Your book, again, is entitled Limited Statehood in Post-Revolutionary Tunisia, Citizenship, Economy and Security. Thank you again. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, the book is uh, coming out with Palgrave right now, so April 2018. Thank you so much for having me here. Maghreb in past and present podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website www.themaghrebpodcast.com as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page Maghreb in past and present podcasts. Subscribe to the Samat newsletter at www.samatmaghreb.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for new episodes.